0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist
1: Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at
0: www.ebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So that's what we do. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So, let me just begin by asking a question. And I don't expect you to answer it, but I expect you to relate to it. (laughs) And that is this. Why do you think we sometimes don't experience joy in life? Or let me ask another question. Why do sometimes you feel like your work is a drudgery? Or why do you struggle in your marriage from time to time? So the big question tonight that the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us to understand is the issue of joy what is joy let me give you my best attempt at a definition Now, this is, no, this is not an you know, exhaustive definition this is just my definition there's probably better ones out there joy is one of those hard things to define I think you know it when you have it and you know when you don't have it but, but biblically I think it's this Joy is a deep-seated sense of peace, contentment, and satisfaction in Christ alone that does not depend upon circumstances, but rests in the unchanging grace of God. So let's break down this definition. First of all, it's deep-seated, which means what? It's not something that's just surfacey. It's something that goes deep into your heart. It's something that's deep. I think joy and peace are somehow connected i think when you experience joy you also experience peace there's this contentment there's this sense of security peace satisfaction in christ now does joy depend upon your circumstances can you be going through bad circumstances and still have joy okay do you guys know what the word happy means where the word happy comes from what's the difference between happiness and joy happy comes from the old english word happenstance what is happenstance? Just the, Your, things that happen. the things that happen, the circumstances. And so happiness means I'm happy when circumstances are going well. When circumstances are not going well, I'm not happy. Joy says, regardless of what I'm going through, I'm going to experience joy. It does not depend upon circumstances. What does joy do? Joy rests in God, God's unchanging grace, God's sovereignty, God's provision. So in the past few chapters, Solomon's been really bothered by an issue. We've looked at it the past couple of weeks. The issue that he's been bothered by is why are all these bad things happening, especially to good people? Why are the evil people prospering? Why is there unrighteousness in the world? Why are all these things happening? And it's got him a little bit discouraged. Now, we said last week, who's the wisest man ever to live? Solomon. Solomon. And Solomon couldn't figure things out. So let's go back to the end of chapter 8, and let's just look at the last few words, uh, the last few verses there. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, this kind of launches us into chapter 9 because this is kind of the summary that he has after observing all these things that just didn't make sense to him. So um, Ecclesiastes eight sixteen, When I applied my heart to know wisdom... And to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What's Solomon's conclusion? I don't have an answer. I can't figure it out. Life is unfair. Life is strange. And I, sometimes I, I stay up at night with sleepless nights trying to figure things out, and I can't. Okay? So here's chapter 9. Here's his point. Here's the point of chapter 9. This is the answer he's going to give us as we go through chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Since we live in an unpredictable world, and we face the certainty of death, we should enjoy the days God has given us. Is life unpredictable? Is death certain? Okay. In light of that, we're supposed to have joy. Okay? So let's read what he says. Chapter 9, 1 through 12. But... All this I laid to heart. All the things he's been talking about the past few chapters. All this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner." And he who swears as he who shuns an oath, this is an evil and all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion for the living know that they will die But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished. And forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you're going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. All right, part one, verses one through six, the certainty of death. And Solomon says, all this I've observed. And what have I come to the conclusion? I've come to the conclusion that God is sovereign. What does he say there? As a wise man, he examines and thinks deeply about these things and realizes that both the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. What does he say there in verse 1? All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Everything's in God's hands. Hasn't he already told us that? Back in chapter 3, there is a time for everything. God is sovereign over all things. This phrase, the hand of God, refers in the Old Testament to God's sovereignty. Job 12.10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It's in God's hand. We sing the song, what? He's got the whole world in his hand. Okay, so it's just a way of saying God's got us in his grip. He's in control. Uh, Think about kings, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the stream of water, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So all of us are in God's hand. But when you go through trials and things don't go your way and you don't fully understand what God's doing in His sovereignty, you may be tempted to ask this question. Does God love me or does God hate me? Why is he doing this to me? There may be a temptation to think bad things are happening to me because God must have stopped loving me and he's punishing me. Is that a real temptation that some people may may feel? Bad things are happening to me. I, I must not be under God's love anymore. Now, look at what he says there at the end of verse One, whether it's love or hate, man does not know both are before him. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate as to far as what this love or hate means, but most scholars believe it's Solomon thinking from a perspective of a person going through struggles. When things are going well, God must be loving me. When things are going bad, God must be mad at me. Is that good theology? Not good theology at all. Okay? So... When you experience suffering, does it mean that God has stopped loving you? Can God discipline you out of love as a father? So that's a big difference. There's a difference between saying, man, I'm going through some bad things because God doesn't love me anymore, He must hate me, versus saying, God is disciplining me because He loves me. Big difference. Now, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, 5-11, through 11, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us And we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. We may be tempted to ask the question when we suffer... Why am I going through this? Has God stopped loving me? No, God's not stopped loving you. You could be going through it as a way of discipline. Not always. It could be discipline. It could just be God has ordained for you to go through it at this time. It could be you don't ever have the answer. But like I said Sunday with the raising of Lazarus, we know that God does two things. He does all things for His glory and for the strengthening of our faith. So whatever we're going through, it's for His glory and for the strengthening of our faith. And we also know, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who have been called according to His purpose. But what's the event that everybody's going to face? No matter if you're rich, you're poor, you're old, you're young, you're evil, you're good, you go to church, you don't go to church. He says there's the same event that happens to all people. What's that event? Yeah. Death. Nobody can escape death. There's a certainty of death. Now, how did death come into the world? Through Adam and Eve. Is death the way God originally meant for creation to experience Death is an enemy, death is a curse, death is a reality. So let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Keep your your finger in um, Ecclesiastes. Turn to Romans 5 because Paul tells us what happened because of one man's disobedience. That one man being Adam. What Adam did affects us all. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and what death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Bottom line, what's his point? Paul's point is Adam's one sin brought death, brought the curse, brought condemnation, brought guilt into the world, and it spread to all of us. So nobody can escape two things. What can you not escape? You can't escape death, and you can't escape inheriting Adam's sin. What does the writer say in Ecclesiastes? He's got this interesting passage there. Look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun. The same event happens to all. That's death. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness. as in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Depressing verse, Right? a depressing verse what's he saying people are full of evil there's madness in their hearts and then they die unregenerate men the unregenerate man has a corrupt and evil heart that leads him to act or her to act wickedly because of adam's sin this one passage here in Ecclesiastes reminds me of Genesis six: five right before the fall when God said, "The Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." That's pretty sinful, right jeremiah 179The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. who can understand it Romans 623 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the tragedy of the lost person here? The lost person. It's a tragedy. They're going to go through their entire life as sinners with wicked hearts, doing madness, and die and go to hell. That's a tragedy. That's very... Scary. It's not something that I would want anybody to go through, but there's a reality. Is there a reality of hell? Is there a reality of lost people going there? Are they going to go there with wickedness? Yes, because of of, of inheriting it from Adam. The only way you can get out of that is by becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And then he says something very interesting there. He says, A living dog is better than a dead lion. What does that mean? A living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay. When we think of dogs in our culture, what do you guys think of? Oh, it's your family pet that may come actually, like, sit on your lap, and you may actually have it in your house, and you may actually pet it. Dave and Jan, I'll ask you the question. India, do you want to pet those dogs that come scavenging? Okay, we talked about that before. Dogs in the ancient Near East were scavengers. They were mongrels. They were dirty animals. Like, today it would be like a rat. Now, a lion was what? the regal animal, the powerful animal, the the king of beasts. And what's he saying? Better to be a rat or a dog that's living, as mangy and mongrelly as you are, than to be dead as a lion. But what do we all intuitively know? I think everybody knows this, that we will one day die. What does verse 5 say? For the living know that they will die. Okay. Inherently, intuitively, in all human beings, is there an impulse, is there knowledge that you're going to die? Now, how do you know that? The, from experience, you you either go to a funeral, you you fall and hurt yourself and realize I'm not... You know, if this, had, this was worse, I could have broken my neck. You know from experience, from observation, that you're going to die. Now, what's the problem with our culture? Here's what our culture tries to do. Our culture tries to suppress the reality of death. We are the most violent culture with mass shootings, terrorist attacks, spousal abuse, video game violence, gore in movies. We see death and destruction all around us, yet at the same time, more money is spent on plastic surgery and issues to outsmart death. We like death as long as it's somebody else. (laughs) Just not us. We all know we're going to die. But the lost person the dead spiritually person, what do they have to look forward to? I think verse 5 and 6 give probably the, mo- the starkest, conclu- the starkest um, statement about death for a lost person. What does it say there? The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. They're, they're no longer remembered. Their love, their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. They have nothing left. No legacy, no memory, no reward. They're forgotten. Now, this is a dark conclusion, is it not? <laughs> Makes you feel really good. You're going to die. Lost people are going to die, and they're not, not going to be remembered. There's madness and wickedness in the world. It's come because of the result of Adam's sin. So we will face the certainty of death. Lost people will live their entire lives, the corrupt hearts of madness, and then die with nothing but hell to face. No one can escape death. Now, at this point, how do you respond to that? Now, there's different ways you can respond. You could get depressed. You can begin to always think about death. You can give in to the madness of your hearts. You can join the wickedness around you. You can get anxious and depressed. I'm going to die. There's death all around me. There's wickedness, anxiety, depression, fear, anger, frustration. You can have all these responses to the certainty of death. But Solomon tells us to have a different response. So here's part two. In light of the certainty of death, enjoy the days God has given us. Enjoy. Which, what's the root word of enjoy? Joy. Enjoy. This is the sixth time in Ecclesiastes that Solomon has given us this command. Eat, drink, Enjoy life. He's given it to us six times. So isn't it kind of amazing as we've gone through Ecclesiastes that his answer to all these problems is what? Live in the now, enjoy what God's given you in the now, because you cannot control the future. You cannot go back to the past, but you can control how do you respond in the present. And you respond with joy. So he gives five short, abrupt commands. This time he's more urgent. This time he's, he's more urgent. And the reason why he's more urgent is because, number one, what does he say? Go! Go! Which means what? Get over it. Get over your anxiety. Wake up. Get going. Stop stewing. Seize the day. Number two, eat your bread with joy. Enjoy your meal. Have a good meal with good friends and enjoy it. Eat that steak. Savor that steak or whatever it is you like to eat. Chicken parmesan. Shrimp scampi. A nice burger, whatever it is. Hummus, if you're a vegetarian. I know some of you are like, what? (laughs) Rice and curry. Enjoy it. And then number three, he says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Notice what he says, for God has already approved of what you do. Now, what does it mean God's already approved of what you do? Literally in the Hebrew text, it means long ago God approved of it. What does this mean? Long ago God approved of what you, what's he telling them? Enjoy food and drink. Because long ago, God set it up for this to be the way it is. This takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Did God just create food to sustain us? Or did He create food for us to enjoy? Have you ever thought about why there's different foods? I mean, think about it. God could have just created spam. (laughs) That's all we got to eat. Why are there all different types of fruits and vegetables and a wide variety of things for us to eat. Because God didn't want us just to be sustained. He wanted us to enjoy. Okay, so go back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1.29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. That's the sustenance part. I'm giving you this for sustenance. I'm giving this to you for food. But in Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Enjoy all of this food, except for one. Can't eat that one tree. But you can sure enjoy all the rest that God has given you. Okay? In the Old Testament, drinking wine was a a sense of gladness. Psalm 104.15, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. Heart. But notice what he says there in verse 8: Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, what are these symbols of? Does that mean that you're supposed to walk around with oily hair and white garments? It's symbolic. Okay. White garments and oil were symbols of pure joy. Okay. When you go back to the book of Revelation and you see how we as Christians are dressed <clears throat> or will be dressed, I don't, I, mean, I don't know if this literally means when we get to heaven we're all going to be wearing white robes, but Revelation 3, 4 through 5. You still have a few names in Sardis. This is to the church in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In heaven, the joy of our salvation will be symbolized by wearing white garments, that we've been purified. It's it's the joy of our salvation. Revelation 7 9. After this, I looked and behold a great number, that no, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So wearing white is a symbol of purity and joy. Oil on your head was also a symbol of joy. Now, remember this. I'm just thinking about this right now. It must be time for something. Um, think about this because I'm, I'm, I'm actually preparing my sermon in my head right now for this Sunday because this Sunday, Mary anoints Jesus with oil. And she does not anoint Jesus on his head, but on his feet. Anointing of oil on the head was a symbol of joy. I'll just leave you hanging on that until we get to Sunday. But listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 23, 5, the the famous psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's, It's a picture of God's blessing, God's joy, the joy of your salvation, God's abundance. Psalm 45, 7, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions, okay? So the the first thing he says is go, get over it. Number two, enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink of choice without getting drunk or whatever. Just don't abuse the drink of choice. But number four, what does he say? Enjoy your marriage. Look at verse 9. Now, obviously, wives, you're going to have to look, think of your husbands, think about spouse. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that's your portion in life. Enjoy life with your spouse if you happen to be married. Now, if you're not married, you enjoy life in different ways. But specifically right here, he's talking about Enjoying life with your spouse. How did God orchestrate this back in the Garden of Eden? What was God's plan from the Garden of Eden? Food. Enjoy it. The Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not a... Found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Why in the world does God have Adam name the animals? Kind of a sick joke when you think about it in a way. Because what's Adam doing? Orangutan, elephant, duckbill platypus, gorilla, newt, gecko with the British accent. I don't know There's all these different things. <laughs> And it keeps saying he names all the animals. And what does it say? There was not one found suitable for him. So in frustration, Adam's like, come on, God, you've got to give me something different. So he goes into a deep sleep. God takes his rib and forms the woman. And notice what the text says. God brings her to him. Who walks Eve down the aisle? God does. And the very first poetry in the Bible is from the mouth of Adam when he sees his naked wife. And what does it say? In the Hebrew, it's, Yoo-hoo! Seriously. This at last. Yippee! Not an orangutan. Not an elephant. It's bone of my bone. It's, It's a human being, but it's not a man. It's a woman. And he's like, This is awesome, God. And then God gives the covenant of marriage. What does he say? You shall leave your father and mother You shall be united to your wife. You shall be one flesh. They were naked and not ashamed. So God's intention from the very beginning was for man and woman, one man, one woman, to be in covenant marriage for a lifetime, to be naked, to not be ashamed, to enjoy each other in the covenant of marriage. And So Solomon says it's okay to do that as a married couple. Enjoy the wife of your youth. As a matter of fact, um, Proverbs 5.18, a little bit more graphic, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So, how do you face the certainty of death and all these things that are happening in your life? Get over it. Enjoy a good meal. Enjoy a good drink. Enjoy your spouse. And then verse 5, I mean the fifth one, you may not like this one. Those those are pretty good. I like eating good food. I like good drink. I like my spouse. Sometimes, maybe. So, for some of you. But this fifth one, I don't know if I like this fifth one. Here's the fifth one Enjoy your work with passion. Notice what he says there. Verse 10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge, or wisdom, and shield to which you're going. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever your job is, whether it's an accountant, whether it's a clerk, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a farmer, whether it's a rancher, whether it's a Walmart employee, whether it's a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is, you are to do it with all of your might, to do it passionately. Do you realize God ordained work before the fall? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and keep it. God created us to be cultivators and workers long before the fall. Now, what happened to work with the fall? It became harder. It became hard work versus work. But Solomon here says, enjoy your work, work at it with all your heart. Be passionate. So how do you survive the certainty of death and all of these questions and all of these things going on, you enjoy in the present what God has given you as gifts? What's he given you? He's given you food to enjoy. He's given you drink to enjoy. He's given you a spouse to enjoy. He's given you a job to enjoy. Now, that applies to everybody in this room. Not not everybody's married, but everybody eats, everybody drinks, and I think almost everybody works. Unless you're retired, you still somewhat work. Don't you, Jerry? You're never done work. Whatever your hand finds to do, even in retirement, whatever that hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Okay. Now, he's dealt with the certainty of death. We're all going to die. Sandwiched in the middle. Have joy in these things that God has given you. But then he talks about not just the certainty of death, but he, part three, the unpredictability of life and the suddenness of death. Now, there's a difference between the certainty of death and the suddenness of death. Do we, are we all going to die one day? But can death come suddenly? Is life unpredictable? Okay. Solomon observes some unpredictable things and he gives some examples of these things that he has observed. He says, again, I saw under the sun, this is verse 11, the race is not to the swift. What's he mean by the race is not to the swift? Sometimes the fastest runner trips and falls and doesn't win. Is that predictable? You train your entire life for the Olympics. Four years, you've gotten up early every morning. And you've done sprint after sprint after sprint. You've done, you have made the time trials. All the lights are shining upon you. They shoot that gun. You go out of the gate, and you're doing the hurdles, and you trip, and you come in last place. But you were ranked number one in the world for the last year. Is that predictable? Life sometimes happens that way. Okay? Example number two the battle to the strong. Nor the battle to the strong. Sometimes the bigger army is defeated by a smaller army. What's predictable? So these are things that are predictable that don't happen. What's predictable? The fastest runner is going to win the race. What else is predictable? The biggest army is going to win, unless your name's Goliath. Did that happen? Sometimes a smaller army, a weaker army, wins the battle. Okay? Third example, bread to the wise. The predictable thing is that if you're smart, you're going to make a lot of money. But does that always happen? Sometimes the smartest and the brightest people don't get good pay. The bread doesn't go to the wise. Example four, riches to the intelligent. Sometimes highly intelligent entrepreneurs fail and go into bankruptcy. It's unpredictable. Example five, favor to those with knowledge. Sometimes people that are the most skillful don't get acknowledged. There's unpredictabilities. So here's the big question. Why are there so many exceptions to the rule? ever thought about that? There's always an exception to the rule. Why do things sometimes never work out? Why is it so unpredictable? Why is it that some, the smartest, wisest, most creative, intelligent, never go anywhere? Why do things not always work out? Why is it unpredictable? Why can't you predict your future? He's got an answer for us. What's the reason? At the end of verse 11. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance. Now, we need to be very, very careful with the word chance. When you think of the word chance, what do you think of? Something haphazard that's kind of a coincidence, right? Will Solomon allow us to have that definition of the word chance based upon everything he's taught us so far? No, Solomon has taught us that God is sovereign over all things. That Hebrew word does not mean the way... Chance is probably not a good... Does anybody have a different translation besides chance at the end of verse 11? Time and chance? Does anybody have a different translation? Does yours all say chance? I'm not sure why they use that. It's not... The Hebrew word there is not some impersonal force or random chance. The word simply means an encounter, a situation over which we have no control. The best translation probably would be a timely accident. Given enough time and given the unpredictability of life, some people are bound to have accidents. Life could be going great for you with tremendous blessings. And then out of the blue, what could happen? Something happens and a circumstance can take it all away. We call that an accident. Some people would call it bad luck. Any way you look at it, what Solomon's saying is there are some things that may happen to you that are out of your control. That you can't predict. Get in a car crash, can you predict that? Go to the doctor. You have cancer. Can you predict that? You see, here's the bottom line: is that you are at the mercy of life circumstances. And they're very unpredictable. Life is short, life is unfair and life is unpredictable. And he gives this analogy here of what happens to us sometimes. Look at verse 12. Man does not know his time. He doesn't know when these things are going to happen to him. Like a fish that's taken in an evil net. Like birds that are caught in a snare, the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You think a fish knows he's going to get caught when he's swimming along? You know, and you're hoping. A bird going to get caught in a, in a, in a trap? A same thing. You're going along merry way of life, minding your business, hoping that things go well, and then boom, out of the blue, suddenly something happens to you that changes your life forever. Can you control it? Okay. So Solomon's being very realistic here. He's saying, listen, you don't know what's going to happen to you. You are going to die And with those two realities, you could live in fear. You could live in anxiety. You could live in depression. You could live in frustration. You could be neurotically confused about what the future holds. But is that the answer? He says, no, chill out and have joy in the gifts that God has given you right now. And they're mundane things, right? You'd think they'd be big things. What are the things he tells us to have joy in? Eating, drinking, marriage, and work. I don't know of anything more mundane than that, which means that those are the everyday things of life. Now, what does the New Testament say about this? Because I think the New Testament sheds more light on this. Enjoy life as a gift that God has given you today because you may not have tomorrow. So, do we have biblical descriptions in the New Testament about these things that Solomon has told us to enjoy? So he told us to enjoy food and drink. Does the New Testament tell us to experience joy and fellowship with other believers, especially eating meals together? Does the Bible tell us that? Okay. What did they accuse Jesus of in Matthew 11, 18 and 19? For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. Did not Jesus like to hang out with people and eat? I I challenge you, go in the Gospels and look at how many times Jesus shows up when people are eating. (laughs) Lot. Because that's where people fellowship, that's where people have relationships over a meal. We in America don't quite understand the value of a meal the way other cultures do. Especially like in the Middle East, especially like in France. When I was a foreign exchange student in France, meals were a big deal. And it was like a big deal. Here, like my wife's a school teacher and she teaches second grade. And every year we talk about this, but she's amazed at how many kids... Don't eat dinner at the table with their parents. They either eat it in front of the TV, on a TV tray. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just in our family, we made a point to sit around the dinner table and eat a meal together because there's something special about, biblically, I think, about sharing a meal. Okay? We often don't invite each other in each other's homes to eat meals together or go out to eat or whatever. But it's a biblical, you have permission to eat together and joy. And then Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 31-33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? Don't fret about these things, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. In the early church, they took very importantly... They took it to heart, this whole idea of eating together. In Acts 2.46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Every day they were eating together with gladness, with joy, breaking bread. First Timothy 4.4, 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Okay? So... The New Testament tells us, enjoy food. Eat a good meal with your friends and fellowship over food. Okay. Does the New Testament tell us to enjoy intimacy with our spouse? Yeah. Ephesians 5, and following, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior.'" Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands to everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes it and nourishes it, just as Christ does the body, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband I could do a lot of talking about that but for the sake of time the Bible talks about husbands and wives loving, respecting, joyfully having a a healthy marriage where you enjoy your spouse does the New Testament tell us to enjoy our work? yes Colossians 3 23-24 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Do you see your job as serving the Lord? Or do you see it as serving your employer? Even if you're self-employed. Work heartily as unto the Lord. Now here's the sad thing about... When you look at your life, and I'm making a general statement here, so don't think I'm just preaching to you, but unfortunately, much of our life is spent in worrying about the future, wasting time on meaningless pursuits, getting entangled in petty arguments, and seeking solace in frustration and stress. Solomon and the rest of the Bible urge us to experience joy in the present because we cannot control The future. Do you agree that we often do not have joy? Do you know the Bible commands you to have joy? Now you can't produce it in and of yourself. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, but Psalm 118 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day, what's the day that the Lord has made? Whatever day. This is the day. It's an old song. This is the day. This is the day. I have to think about it in French, too. We used to sing that when I, when I went on a, French, on a mission trip. Voici la jour que la Anyway, um, so Philippians 4.4. 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Command. Rejoice. Rejoice. First, Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Now, as I thought about this passage in Ecclesiastes, I thought, man, this is really depressing. All we think about is death. It's unpredictable. We don't know the future. And so part of it is like, okay, if that's true, how do I really have joy? if, if, if... That's kind of depressing. So I, I thought about something, and here's the statement. A great part of having joy in the present is to think about the hope of our future. If you don't think about the hope of your future, you will be depressed and frustrated. So what I'm going to do, because we're done with Ecclesiastes, I thought it would be fun to go to the end of the Bible. So let's go to Revelation chapter 21, which is the greatest description. And men that were in my men's study, I know we did this a few weeks ago when we finished up Revelation, but you probably forgot it by now. Revelation 21 and 22, give some of the greatest descriptions of what heaven's going to be like. And I think it's important for us to think about heaven, think about our future, think about the hope we have, because when we think about the hope of the future, it does help us to have joy in the present. Would you agree with that? Okay. Because death is certain, but death's not final. Yeah, we're going to face death, but what's on the other side of death? Heaven. Heaven. Okay, so Revelation 21, 1 through 9. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband." and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay. Where does the Bible begin? Not a trick question. It begins in the Garden of Eden. The Bible has a storyline. The Bible has a beginning, middle, beginning. Does that make sense? How does the Bible start? You got what? Earth. God made the heavens and the earth. Okay, what's the middle? Everything goes south, we're sinners, Christ dies, He comes. He, you know, he rises again. But then, what does the passage here say? There was a new heaven and a new earth. So there is a new beginning, which ushers us into the end, but there is no end. Okay, so it's beginning, middle, beginning. And a lot of the imagery in heaven is reminiscent of what we see in the Garden of Eden. And I will show you that. The Bible does speak of the newness, the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is from the Old Testament. God promises a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on the twelve thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the new world. But it's interesting. What's the first thing that John sees <clears throat> in this new renovated creation? Does he see streets of gold? What does he see? Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven From God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, what does he see? What's the new Jerusalem? What's the bride? It's the church. The very first thing that John sees is the symbolic church, which is very interesting. Is heaven so much about streets of gold, or is it about us being together as God's people with Jesus? It's about the relationship we have as God's people together. So the very first thing that he sees is the church. We also know it's the church because in verse 9 he said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now what, we're, what will we experience in the new heavens and the new earth? Twelve glorious descriptions of our future. Twelve is a good biblical number. What are these 12 things that we will experience in heaven? Number one, God will dwell with us. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as our God. Now, why is this so important? All throughout the Bible, God made a promise he would dwell with his people. Right now, does God dwell with us? Yes, through the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians six sixteen. For we are the temple of the living God, and God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God dwells with us right now, but in the fullness does God dwell with us. Do we see God face to face yet? What does it mean for God to dwell with us? It means that we will have direct, unhindered access to God himself in heaven. God will dwell with us. There's no separation. Okay? Number two, there will be an absence of the effects of sin. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What are the former things? The things of the curse, the things of the fall, the things of sin. What's the final enemy? Death. What's God going to get rid of? Death, crying, mourning, pain. All those things are going to pass away. Now, If you had done a study with Revelation with me, you'd realize that in verse 5, we have the very first time that God Himself speaks since chapter 1, verse 8. All throughout the book of Revelation, It's either Jesus is speaking to the seven churches or angels are speaking, but God himself has been eerily silent until now. And what does he say? Finally, a voice comes from the throne and it may be the single most important statement in all the book of Revelation. What does he say in verse five? Behold, I'm making all things new. All things new. Now, we see a, um, a picture of that in our salvation, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But God is going to make all things new. Now, I don't know what that means, but I sure don't want to have any remnants of the old. If God is making all things new, that's a great thing to look forward to. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but all things will be new. Not only that, he tells us we will have perpetual refreshment for the soul. Look at verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The water of life without payment. Now, does that mean we're going to be thirsty in heaven? I don't think so. I think it's a metaphor for what? We will no longer have any needs. We will have perpetual refreshment. Right now in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Right now we thirst for God because we can't see Him. When we get to heaven, we will perpetually be quenched. The thirst will be quenched because we have ultimate access to God. Number four, we get to look forward to adoption into God's family. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But notice who's not in heaven. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, let me just stop and make sure that you understand this verse correctly. This is not saying if you've ever committed a sin, you're going to hell. He's talking about unrepentant sinners who have never come to faith in Christ they will be spending eternity in hell. doesn't mean if you've ever been sexually immoral or if you've ever told a lie, you're not going to get to go to heaven. This is unrepentant sinners. Okay? Now, let's keep reading. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates and 12 angels... And the gates of the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, what comes down out of heaven? The holy city, which is also the bride. Okay? So we are the New Jerusalem, we are the church, we are the bride. But the question then becomes, where in the Old Testament did the full glory of God reside? Do you remember? In the Holy of Holies. Do you remember the dimensions of the Holy of Holies? It was an exact, well, not the, the new one, yeah. The Holy of Holies was the only structure in the Bible that was a perfect cube, okay? And the Holy of Holies is where God's glory resided. Only the high priest had access into the Holy of Holies one day of year on the Day of Atonement. This is where the glory cloud of God resided. Not your average Joe Israelite could go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice. This was the most sacred place on planet Earth where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Okay? Keep that in mind. As you look at the descriptions of heaven, there's a great high wall. Why is there a high wall? It's a picture of eternal security. We rest in God's sure foundation and protection. The 12 gates and 12 stones are symbolic of the Old Testament people, 12 tribes combined with the New Testament people, 12 apostles. But now we're all one in Christ. We're, We're together as one people. And the city is a perfect cube, which symbolizes the only other perfect cube in the Bible, the Holy of Holies. Let's keep looking here. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Okay, it's important. The only other structure in the Bible that has a perfect cube is the Holy of Holies. Until we get to this. And what's the dimensions of this? A perfect cube cube what's the difference between the holy of holies in the old testament and the holy of holies in heaven Anybody can go in, in the New testament. okay so who was allowed in the holy of holies in the old testament the priest. only the priest that's where the glory of god resided okay here's the mind-boggling thing about revelation it's not necessarily where is the holy of holies it's who is the Holy of Holies. What's this a description of? The church. Somehow, mind bogglingly, we as the church have direct access to God in the ultimate Holy of Holies in heaven as his people symbolic of this unlimited, unhindered, perfect fellowship with God forever in His presence so that we can approach the very glory of God. What happened to anybody if they approached the glory of God in the Old Testament? they die. Anybody see God in the Old Testament, they died. Where are we in heaven? Right in the very presence of God with no fear of dying. Go down to verse 22. Number five, unhindered fellowship with God. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now what? what? I saw no temple, but the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Which one is it? Yes. (laughs) There's no physical temple. Who's the temple? And us. Who's the temple? God and the Lamb. Who's the temple? The church. Which one is it? Yes. (laughs) Welcome to the world of Revelation, where mixed metaphors come together. 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sac- sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, there is no temple because we are the temple and God and the Lamb are the temple. There's a commingling of being together in the Holy of Holies as the people of God in direct access with God. And number six, we will enjoy the radiant glory of God. Look at verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. Okay, so we get to enjoy the full glory, the radiant glory, the light of the world up close and personal without being blown away. Also in heaven, we get to look forward to an absence of fear. Look at verse 25. The gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. Why do we need gates today? Why do we have gated communities? To keep people out. Why do people fear the dark? When do crimes happen? So you crimes happen at night, and you put gates up so that people don't come in and do stuff. Why, there's no gates and there's no night, which means what? I don't have to have any, I'm going to have no fear. Think about that for a moment. Think of all the times you feared, even as a little kid. Even, think about your earliest memories of fear. <clears throat> like just your earliest memories of fear and then how there's times in your life where you fear. Now, can you conceive of never having fear? I can't conceive of that. But in heaven, we will have no fear. Who's in the city? Verse 27, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's not in the new heavens and the new earth? Unclean sinners who've not repented and believed. Okay, let's keep going into chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With his twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp for sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, let's keep going. What's the eighth thing that we get to look forward to? Access to the tree of life. What does it say there in verse 2? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, where was the other place we saw the tree of life? And what was forfeited to Adam and Eve? The tree of life. Now they have access to the tree of life. I don't know if that means we're all going to go just like pick fruit off the tree of life and eat it. But it's going to yield fruit each month. I don't know know if that's symbolic or literal, but we will have access. It's symbolic for what we lost in the garden will be restored to us in greater glory because we'll have access to what was forfeited. Okay? Also, number nine, total destruction of the curse that frees us to worship and serve God. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. What happened in the Garden of Eden? What what happened? God pronounced a curse on creation. But there's not going to be anything cursed in the new heavens and the new earth. The curse has been reversed by Jesus. Number 10 is one of my favorite ones. Seeing Christ face to face. Verse 4, They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. seeing Christ face to face. Moses got close, but it had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. God, yeah, or God. Moses, yeah. Now people got to see, people got to see Jesus on Earth. Yeah. Okay. So here's my personal opinion. I don't know if it's right. So you can disagree with me on this. I'm not sure even if in heaven we will be able to see God the Father. I think we'll see Jesus, obviously, because He's the physical manifestation. But it seems like Revelation almost protects the identity of God the Father on His throne to where maybe in heaven we may not still even be able to be. I don't know. We may or we may not. Jesus is the one mediator. Um, I think when it's talking about seeing His face, I think it's talking about Jesus there, the Lamb. Um, Either way, it's not going to matter. We're not going to be frustrated in heaven. It's not going to be like, oh, man, I can't see God. Um, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We'll get to see Jesus. Number 11, the peace of being owned by Christ. Look at verse 4. His name will be on their foreheads. Now, um, if we had done a whole study on Revelation, you'd know that being sealed on the forehead is a symbol of ownership. When you have a seal on your forehead, it means that you're owned by God. Now, all of you, if you're a Christian, you have a seal on your forehead. Now You can't see mine and I can't see yours because it's symbolic, but it's this whole idea that God owns you. You're His. And then the last, the joy of eternal life. Verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign how long? Forever and ever. Okay. So there are 12 descriptions of what we get to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when things are painful now and things are stressful now and things are frustrating now, one good way to have joy is is to think about what our future hope is. That's our reward. That's what we get to look forward to. That's what God has promised us. That's why we say, come Lord quickly. You know what the word Maranatha means? Maranatha means come Lord quickly. Um, I don't know about you, but aren't those those times where you're like, why don't you just come back now, Jesus? And for His sovereign purposes, He's not. And you can't control when he comes back. And you can't control your future. And you can't control the day of your death. And you can't control unpredictable events. What's the one thing you can control? Am I going to have joy in the present? Am I going to enjoy the gifts that God has given me today? Good food, good drink, good marriage, good job. And am I going to look forward to the future knowing what my hope is? That's how you survive a crazy world I think that's what Solomon would tell us, how you survive a crazy world. So that's all I got tonight, guys, unless there's any questions or comments or snide remarks.
1: of his life. If it's that simple, then how did he take the turn into it?
0: You know what I, mean? I don't know right. if we ever said it was simple.
1: Well I mean and then you said go, like essentially it's kind of stop anxiety, stop all these fears, stop this stuff. And even even the even in your definition of joy, I mean like a worldview, right? That's that's something that's created from the time you're almost an infant True. to thirty some years. So just a...
0: How you view the world and how you process.
1: Yeah, I, I, all of a sudden you're going to say, okay, God is good. God, somebody told me that. Or, you know, you get that in. And then just have a deep-seated to create joy. Mm-hmm. So, um, how does that work? Because it seems like it almost has to be a
0: supernatural gift. It is. Gift. Yeah, joy is not something that you can produce. Jesus says in John um, is it 14 and 15. No, it's John 15. Um, I give you this joy, and the world can't take it away. So something that Jesus has to give you, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, joy. So it's not something that you can turn on and off and say, okay, I'm going to have joy. I think it's something the Holy Spirit has to produce in you, but I think it's something you have to pursue and seek and pray for and ask for, because I think that there... You're not totally passive in it. Like you can't create the joy, but you can diligently pursue the means by which God can bring that joy. So it's kind of like this. Can you, can you provide the rain for the crops? What's the one thing you can do? You can plant the seed. You can cultivate the land. You can get everything ready, and then you're totally dependent upon God to bring the rain. So there's some things that you can do to get yourself in a posture, to get yourself ready, to surround yourself, you know, read, pray. But ultimately, if that joy is going to come, it's going to be God sovereignly bringing it like the rain. And then can you cause the crops to grow? No, only, only the miracle of... So God's going to cause it to grow. So there, in our sanctification, there's some things we can do to get prepared, but ultimately, if there's any growth, it's the sovereignty of God doing it and producing it. And at the end of the day, He's the one that's done it. But there's some things I think we can do to get ourselves ready and in an aposture does that does that make sense yeah i just when you when it's yeah. always like flip a switch yeah know? i don't think it's, it's that easy like this, you know? yeah it's not like a person wants to yeah switch, yeah i think that i think it would be wrong to go up to some. <laughs> i think it would be like it would be re- it would be the worst pastoral counsel to go up to something that's just like like somebody, gets, somebody comes, comes to me and say, Pastor Sean, I just got diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. I've only got like maybe a month to live. The worst thing for me to say, get over it, put your big boy pants on and have joy. Okay, I mean that, that, would, be, that would be really bad to do. Um, but some people have that. You, like why don't you just get over it? You know, and, and, and it's life is more difficult. And I think that's why Solomon's like, you know, life's more difficult than that. It's It's unpredictable. Um, it's frustrating, we don't know, we just need to pray for joy. Ask the Lord for joy. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, when I hear, like, the word go,
1: my mind goes to try. And try again the next day. And
0: try again the next day. So it's like I hear that go, it kind of translates to the word try. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, and and I think we don't want to overplay that word go in this. sense it's like it's all up to you now go go yeah. go go do it yeah. yeah are you saying that's a good thing to try okay so so go it means that it's something that you need to be proactively seeking and not just stay where you're at be proactive um and so how, how like let me ask you a question two people that are experiencing the same situation the one person who's surrounding themselves with Christian friends, reading their Bible, praying, um, being accountable to others, being among the body, versus a person who isolates himself, doesn't read their Bible, doesn't pray, and has basically got a grumpy attitude. Which person do you think is going to experience more joy?
1: Are you talking the, per- the person who's actually going to Bible study and being honest with their heart? Well...
0: Well, I mean, let's let's not look at heart. Let's not let's not look at heart motive. Let's just say the person that's doing the Bible says has a good heart. His heart is motivated to do the right thing. The other person's heart is not, but they're surrounding themselves with things that would be positive things that would help their joy. Does Does that make sense, Tyler? Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Then I feel the pressure
0: and works, and then let me. The is, and I think, and me going to let me. Yeah, let surprising. me. Yeah, let me. Let me. Let me relieve the anxiety by turning to Philippians chapter two. So you guys turn there. This is extra tonight, so you don't have to pay me anymore. This is an extra, an extra thing here. It's a freebie. Philippians two twelve through thirteen. Um, I often go back to this because I think it's important. Because Paul, how much time do we have? Just like a few minutes. Seven minutes. Okay, I can do this. So Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Okay, you've got two verses here. You've got verse 12 and you've got verse 13. And if either one of those stood alone by themselves, you'd have an unbalanced view of sanctification. But in God's sovereignty and in His, prov- in His providence and putting the Scripture together, both these verses are together. So let's see what Paul says. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now also in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, what's the command in verse 12? Not work for, but work out with fear. Okay, so that means pursue holiness. Whose responsibility is this? a command you pursue you work it out you serve the lord with fear now if that's the only verse we had what would that lead to it's it's all me it's all me if i don't perform i'm going to feel anxious i can do this so you're going to have two responses i can really do this and you get prideful i can never do this and you get anxious So there is a responsibility upon you to do this. You're not passive. God's not going to do your quiet time for you, okay? God's not going to pray for you. God's not going to go to church for you. There's some responsible things you have to do. But what do we have in verse 13? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's doing the work? God works in you, and what does He, what does he do? He, he works in you to, to will and to work, which is very, very important. Okay, so if you're going to have any type of progress, if you're going to have any growth, who's got to do the work? <laughs> okay, but here's the beauty. Notice what Paul says. God Will will and what is it? God will put the will in you. God's going to put the desire. God will put the desire in you and God will put the ability in you. You in your flesh don't have the desire to please God and you don't have the ability to please God. You don't want to and you can't. So this, this is like want to, this is can't. There are times you don't want to please God, there's times that you can't in your flesh. But what does God do? God puts the want to into you, God does the can do in you so that you can do it. At the end of the day, it's God who does it. So if there's any fruit, if there's any growth, who's responsible for it? Is it you or is it God? It's God. He gave you the desire, He gave you the ability, you're responsible to do it. At the end of the day, somehow God gets the glory because He worked in you to do it. Now Don't ask me how that all works out. (laughs) If you only had verse thirteen, what is the imbalance there there's no resp- yeah there's no responsibility you're just passive you know let go let God and, and, and there's no I don't have to do anything God's going to kind of just zap me and give me you know give me instant growth. Now maybe God may do that at times, so both of these verses together give you the balance of your responsibility god's responsibility ultimately god's going to give you the desire to do it god's going to give you the ability to do it so that you can do it and at the end of the day god's going to get the credit for producing the fruit and you're going to rest in the fact that even if you fail god will still sustain you and give you that and grow that in you and let me just say this sometimes we are not even cognizant of how god is working in us Do you always know how God's working in you? Do you see how the Holy Spirit's doing that? You may look over your life over a year and say, wow, I've come a long way. And I have no idea how it happened. And you look back and say, God must have been working secretly in my heart to bring me to where I am today and I have no idea how it happened, but I give praise to God. So there's times that you may not even see God working. Now, what's the beauty of this? Does God still work even when we don't see it? Does God still work when we don't work? Yes, if you're truly his child. Did that make sense or was that too confusing? I'm seeing you like Okay.
1: And you asked at the very beginning, why do we not have joy. joy. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is because we're selfish. Mm-hmm. You know, we want the things around us to make us giddy with <laughs> happiness, you know, and, mm-hmm. and translate that into joy. Yeah. But joy Years ago in Vacation Bible School was, you know, Jesus, others, and you. you. Yeah. And if we put Jesus first and serving other people, that's really where mm-hmm. our joy will come yeah. from. Because we're not focusing, we're not being selfish. We're not yeah. focusing on, you know, what we want now. Or even focusing on our life here on earth. Right. That's where when you're in the midst of yuck, yeah. you know, our, we have that joy that we have a hope. But yeah. this is not the be-all, end-all. That yeah. we have something greater and grander yeah. coming and that we do get to be in the presence of God. And that's where yeah. our joy is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of times the reason we're not joyful is because we're selfish. It's all about me. And when things aren't going the way I want them to go, we get joyless.
1: And we're focused on this life. Yeah, we're focused. Our eternal life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Yes, Sue. Comment back on your anxiety. Yeah. We can control our thoughts. Yes. And so
1: we can control that, but you know, it comes over you. Well, take every thought captive Captive of Christ. Christ.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the passage, take every thought captive to Christ. So if a thought comes in there, you take it captive to Christ. There's also be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the more that you feed your mind with Scripture, the more that you feed your mind with prayer, the more over time your mind is going to be renewed to where you won't have as many of those those thoughts. Lori, you're, you're smiling. You look like you want oh, so. to say something. Oh, okay. It all starts in the mind. Yeah, it starts in the heart and the mind. Yeah. All right, well, next Wednesday, anybody else have anything? As a lost, if your nature's... Either, like you're but I would say as a believer, you don't have a corrupt nature.
1: You, don't, well then how does your you have a regenerated uh, nature. Or you, where you say, you, you know, you're covered in snow, but you're underneath, you're dumb. Like, you still have that. Yeah, right, you still have... I mean, I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ, but I'm still...
0: Yeah, you still have it. Like you, you're regenerated in the sense that you still have remaining sin, but you're no longer enslaved to that. And you're no longer in bondage to that. So you now have the power and the choice to say no. A a Christian is not corrupt in the sense that you're, you're regenerated, you're justified, but you still have the pollution of sin remaining. So your identity is not that of a corrupt person. Your identity now is a saint. See, I think we've messed up our terminology. Some people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Really, what we should say is, I'm a saint who sometimes sins. If you thought about it, I mean, we focus more on, I can't help, I'm, my, my identity is that of a sinner. Actually, if you're a Christian and regenerated, your identity is that of a believer who still happens to sin, but that doesn't define you. What defines you now? How does God address all the believers in the Bible? as saints. So, yes, we still have remaining sin, but our nature's been regenerated to the sense that we're no longer, we still have depravity, we still have sin nature, but it's a regenerated nature, which means now we have the ability, the desire, we're no longer in bondage. We, can, we, we, can now, have, we now have the power to say no, whereas was before we didn't. Does that make sense, Tyler?
1: Yes, I think when, they, when you're aware. And what I mean by that is like, like say somebody, somebody shamed a kid for a really long time, Mm-hmm. And then that kid grows up, and then he, you know, has this worldview, this way of mm-hmm. protecting himself from that. So a lot of the ways, he doesn't even know, like, sure. when he's in places, that he's actually sinning or doing something. Like, his mind's just patterned to serve, and then as God enlightens him, then I think he can. But in those moments where he becomes protective, I, I think it's, it's a lot harder when you're not, a, you know what I mean? I yeah. think God, yes, as you behold, and you... You mature and you transform when the saints come, but a lot of times I just don't think you, yeah. you're, you're always aware yeah. enough to take captive. Yeah, What needs to be taken captive yeah. is the root of that, that whole stirring you're not even
0: aware of. In yeah. The first place, you know? Yeah, and that's why that was Psalm 139 that says, um, let me just close with this, because I know some of you got to get your kids. Um, what does it say? Yeah, Psalm one thirty nine twenty three. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer. God, search my heart. God, search my thoughts. If there's sin, reveal it. If I'm blind, but then it doesn't just leave it there. It says, lead me in the way everlasting. So you pray for God to lead you out of that to expose your heart. So Make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, it's been good tonight to be in your word and it's been good to think about heaven And the joy of what it's going to be to be able to be in your presence forever, unhindered access to the very throne room of God. And Lord, when we are faced with difficulties and trials in this world, help us not to be so selfish and so earthly minded. But Lord, help us to have the joy of our salvation, the joy of our future. And Lord, help us to be other centered. And Lord, just um, help our hearts to be focused upon the gifts that you give us every day, Lord. Help us to see uh, our work, our marriage, even the food and drink that we have as a gift of your grace, and help us to enjoy it, Lord, um, as a gift from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Remember next week... Uh...